Greetings, Parish Orphans and Retrogrades. With another exciting episode, I come to you with two more co-hosts. You know, I like to do this co-hosting thing, and Rules for Retrogrades is all about getting in fellow Mississippians. So today I present to you uh, two guests on the show who will act as co-hosts who have been on the show before. To my right, to my immediate right, is the vice president and executive editor of Regnery Press. He's my book's publisher, uh, Don't Go to College, and my, my friend Michael's publisher here. And this is, of course, Dr. Michael Robillard to my far right, been on the show with me a number of times. And we're going to be discussing the case for national divorce. What the heck is that all about? We're going to be talking all about the Civil War and a Civil War book that you should pick up in today's show. So, uh, Harry and Michael, thanks for joining me live in studio. Great. My pleasure to be here. You need to make Michael a Mississippian, too. <laughs> right, yeah. We're trying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're trying. What, yeah, what, yeah, Michael, any, any chance that you'll uh, join Harry and I down here in Mississippi? Uh, possibly. We'll, we'll see. We'll see as, uh, as things uh, develop. Uh, yeah. So the, the craziest thing is, Harry, how you and I met, I don't think I've told this story before. Uh, everything is America themed today and America South themed today. Yeah, I but, was going to wear my Lee tie, but I only had this American tie. Lee, Lee, the <laughs> strength of the South. Yeah, and I'm wearing my America themed shirt, which is uh, technically in the Southern states. It's even fancier and more proper than what you're wearing. <laughs> this is my America show themed shirt. Uh, you know, it's it's business in front and it's party on the sides, just like America, particularly Civil War America, which is what we're doing today. But um, yeah, the funny part was before I was introduced to Mr. Harry Crocker, I was talking to one of my friends and editors at Crisis uh, Publications, which is Sophia Institute. And he said, I'm going to hook you up with Harry at Regnery. And the very next day, I get a call from you. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. So our mutual friend hooked us up. And you're like, no, I was selling a house to move to Mississippi. And people said, oh, another... I th was it the buyer said, oh, another yeah. California turned Mississippi, just like Tim Gordon. Yes. Is that right. what? That's th exactly it. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> it was the most striking coincidence I've ever been a part of even passively. So we're, we're talking about it uh, just before we began rolling tape. So here's, here's the deal. Harry, I want to talk to you about your book. But before we, we get to your book, your, your Civil War themed book and Reconstruction era themed book, we have to get to... Civil War Simplicitaire. We have to get to Civil War Simplicitaire, which is become a fashionable thing to talk about. So, I mean, like, two or three of the most prominent ideas in my mind are traditional Catholicism, which the Atlantic magazine and the Week magazine, Secular Rags, called the trend of 2022. And I was like, what the heck is happening? This is weird. What I'm always talking about is all of a sudden mainstream. And then... The case for a national divorce has been popular on the left lately. This is something I've been publishing on for 10 years. So we have to talk today about topic number two, the case for national divorce. And what I thought I would do, if it's okay with you guys, is go through, I googled it, the seven most common reasons that the pagans give, non-Christians give, online for why divorce between a man and a woman is a good thing. So I figured... Why not extend the metaphor fully to, because we, all three of us are Roman Catholics, right? So none of us can accept, uh, you know, the, the parting of what God has joined. 
But that's not true with the case of nations. So is that okay with you guys if we do the show today like that? Sure. Mike, Michael and I are working on this article. Harry, I don't know where you're going to come out on this. As a Civil War buff, regnery guy, extraordinary uh, blue blazer, uh, just <laughs> heck, have a, heck of a new Mississippian. I don't know where you're going to come out on this. So this is how I like to do interviews live. I'm, I'm spitting the questions at you. First off. The main reason the pagans give for divorce between a man and a woman is that there are irreconcilable differences. That's the primary sort of catch-all provision for why pagans think divorce is a good thing. Remember on Mrs. Doubtfire, when Mrs. Doubtfire is talking to Sally Field and she's like, oh, marriage is such a blessed thing. And Sally Field says, so is divorce. I I loved that movie when I was a kid. I didn't realize what a tremendous bit of agitprop it was. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's agitation propaganda. And she just, Sally Field goes on to say, hey, look, when you have irreconcilable differences, there, there's no point in carrying on a marriage. That's actually not true because of the graces of marriage and all that. What do you two say, Harry first, then Michael, about the idea that I don't think anyone disputes there are differences which won't be reconciled between what's called the left in America today and what's called the right. And since we're not bound by some oath sworn to God, which is the main reason, together with the grace, the countervailing graces, that you wouldn't have a divorce between man and woman, well, without that starch block, why not cite irreconcilable differences, which everyone agrees exist? as a darn tootin' good reason not to have the country come apart. Okay, so I'll give it to the Civil War buff first. Uh, yeah, well, I, I, I take it back a step and say, all right, so in marriage, it's one flesh. And if you're having a national divorce, the first question is, is it one nation? Because in the buildup to the uh, Civil War, if you read a lot of the uh, Southern uh, arguments, they come down sort of to that. It's that they talk about the Yankee Nation. And the Yankee Nation is this puritanical, judgmental, um, intolerant, uh, no better than we do. We're living with this issue of slavery. And, um, and, and they reject it. They actually think they are two radically separate cultures, yeah. um, which is a little bit more believable because remember the Constitution, the Union, is a rat, it was ratified by separate sovereign states. 13 peoples, yeah. So what they enter into willingly, the argument is, they should be able to leave willingly. It's not like there's not a, a, uh, a self-defeating treaty of death if, you, if it doesn't serve your, your interests. Yeah. Um, so on, the, on that point, I, I guess that's part one, is are we a nation today? And I think you could say that the differences between red and blue are stark. In fact, I've argued this in print. They're starker than what they had in 1860. In 1860, you had people who famously, is partly paraphrasing uh, Lincoln, we believe in the same God. Right. We venerate the same constitution. We come from the same stock. Um, you had, there was no question back then of what a woman is. <laughs> a lot of these questions were, were settled and agreed upon and that is why I actually wrote a, a piece that went viral this is a few years ago. Uh, it was titled, Why Our Next Civil War Will Be Worse Than Our Last. And this was part of the argument, was that the, the differences now are so, fund, are, are so stark that you, it's hard to imagine an anecdote I, um, I offered from the life of Custer. Custer was a Union 
officer, but he was very friendly with the Southern cadets at West Point. And during the war, I just think this is a great story. During the war, he attended the wedding of a Confederate officer <laughs> at a plantation house in Virginia and spent his time flirting with the Southern Bells who tried to convert him to the Confederate view. <laughs> uh, Gotta and, love the South. And a- after the war, he was a, he was a force of um, reconciliation, Custer was, because he thought we have no, you know. <laughs> he was loyal to the Union because he thought he swore youth, an oath to the Union. He's from a Northern state. Um, but he didn't see this as some sort of irreconcilable thing. Right. Now, one huge difference from a practical point of view now, too, is back then, it was very much a geographical divide. Now, red state America and blue state America are also, in part, a geographical divide, but it's much more mixed. Right. And a divorce now, as messy as the Civil War was, would be much messier uh, if it happened now. And there's this other aspect, which I thought of too. It's partly political, partly theological, which is, um, you know, Mrs. Thatcher had this famous line about, um, before you win the vote, you have to win the argument. Right. And I worry, it's natural conservative instinct, just want to, like you and I, retreat the Mississippi, to come to the readout, just leave us alone. But the problem is that eventually you run out of places to retreat to. Yeah. I mean, no one wins a war by retreating all the time. The famous Confederate general who retreated all the time was Joseph E. Johnston, who was completely defeated. All the People said he was a great strategist, tactician, but he was always in retreat. You don't win a war that way. And I worry that we, in embracing a national divorce, perhaps we give up the argument and we give up even the Great Commission if we actually think that political arguments are at base religious arguments. Then are we really going to sacrifice a half or more of the country to Satan or to, or, to, or to the pagans? Or are we going to try, no matter how hard it is, and you and I still have friends in California living in a form of hell in some places, or are we going to, despite it all, try to convert them and try to win them over, um, however difficult that will be? And what makes it extremely difficult is that our opponents don't give us the opportunity of reasoning with them. When you have to have arguments, I was actually talking to Michael about this earlier, the reason why, it's actually the reason why I write fiction now rather than history. Right. Is because I find it absurd to have to argue about what is a woman? Can a man become pregnant? All these things, just, they're just ridiculous. If, if, you are, if you purport to believe those things, you are divorced from reason. I'm not going to win you over that way. So there must, we need other means of evangelization than reason. Maybe fiction is one of them. Maybe literature is one of them. Um, but I do. I am haunted by this thought that if we keep retreating, if we divorce and we tr- end up retreating, we will eventually lose. So you're equating divorce with retreat. For for that's not that's not what I say. I don't yeah, think yeah. it would be retreat, but that 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 is what a lot of conservatives say. Yeah, mm-hmm. Michael, what say you? So yeah, e- echoing similar sentiments to to what Harry just mentioned. Uh, it reminds me of a, a friend of ours, a Thomas philosopher, Christopher uh, Tomaszewski. He once said to me, in order for a nation to function, everybody doesn't need to be on the same sentence, but they at least need to be on the same page. And right now it's like we're on two different books. And it's in virtue of finding common ground over basic, basic reality has now become uh, not even a space of common ground. Yeah. So if you have two totally different polities 
that some think there are infinite genders that can be stipulated at will, and other thinks that, that there are two sexes that are God-given and biologically essential. Uh, if you have one group that is committed to dissolving the nation, national borders as such and doesn't want America to exist at all, and you have another one that wants a nation to exist and thinks that it is uh, properly sovereign to do so, uh, if you think that uh, white folks are born with uh, unreconcilable original secular sin, and then you have another set of folks that believe in citizenship and merit, and that, that we're all equal citizens, uh, you're not talking about mere debates over resources anymore. You're talking about paradigm, metaphysical, epistemological, ethical paradigm level incommensurability. Uh, and th those are the tectonic plates that are scraping right now. And we're seeing all these other things, are, you know, they're obviously like surface issues, but paradigm level issues uh, of commensurability is really what is driving a lot of this right now. I just put in one thing. So we're all kind of into localism here. Yeah, um, definitely. Michael is stuck up in New England. <laughs> and, it's my home. But yes, but that's the thing. It's your home. It's my home, yeah. And if there's a national divorce, you're going to be on the wrong side of the border. Yeah. Do you go from East Berlin to West Berlin, or do you stick it out in East Berlin? This, yeah, this, yeah, that's exactly my, uh, yeah, my. That's my, why you got to come to Mississippi. Man. <laughs> that's what we're. I thought I, that's what we were talking about. That, well, for me, this was actually a real thing. I kept thinking, no matter how bad it gets, I'm invested in California. I go back there generations. I worked for a Republican governor back there. I got to go back, and it became apparent to me, finally, during COVID, actually, mm -hmm. I can't go back. I can't go back. I got to go someplace else. Yeah, this is so. A lot of Massachusetts. I mean. I speak for a lot of folks in the area that I came from, right? Their, their ancestors literally got off of the Mayflower and then never left. And uh, for the most part, Massachusetts, other than Boston and Worcester, it's a red state. It's a conservative Christian Catholic state that is being dictated by Boston and, uh, and all, the, all the liberals in that center. And it is that paradox. Yeah, it's, it's East Berlin. You may not remember this, you may be too young. Ronald Reagan in his re-election campaign mm -hmm. took Massachusetts. He did. Yeah. 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 He took every state aside yeah. from Minnesota. Yeah. yeah. I mean, okay, so look, a couple, a couple notes. We're gonna get to pagan reason two for divorce, which is the one that came up in both of your guys' answers, and it's desertion. Now I'm gonna claim a different party is guilty of deserting the marriage than it sounds like you guys are claiming. You're putting it on the, the citizens of each of the several states. I'm going to put it on the government. But before we do that, I want to apologize for one thing. Sorry, I feel both your guys' eyeballs on the side of my face. And we're, <laughs> we're just not set up like Pints with Aquinas is where we can, you know, we have cameras on both ends. That's, that's, the, that's what you call the, the fancy stuff. And uh, it would be this lovely. This is Mississippi stuff. This is Mississippi <laughs> stuff. This is, this is we, we rig it up how we have to. We're three large men sitting in a uh, small space with one microphone, the way Steph and I uh, do it. It works much better with Steph and I because she can, she can practically sit on my lap. But no, uh, Harry, Harry declined my offer to sit <laughs> on his lap. So I apologize for that. Secondly, if you like what you're seeing, so many folks watch this channel and forget to subscribe. Please subscribe to this channel. Like it. Leave a comment. I like cookies. It's fine. You just got to do something. Make sure you're subscribed to the channel and you get notifications for when we have new shows. And support the channel as well. Go to Timothy J. Gordon at Patreon. Patreon slash Timothy J. Gordon. And help us because in October, 
we're doing another club. We do book clubs throughout the year, and we're doing a watching club thematically on point. We're watching the first season of Stranger Things, which is deeply, deeply Aristotomist in its first season. And it's going to be great fun for the Holotide. So go to Patreon support today. Also, I can't miss my endorsement that I make most shows, of all shows, <laughs> of all episodes, this one, because it's exactly what we're talking about. And it's exactly what I talk about in Catholic Republic. I'm talking about real estate for life. Get out of your blue state. Get the hell out, Michael Robolo. <laughs> and get to a red state. And the good folks at Real Estate for Life org will help you do that. I got from the bluest of the blue to the reddest of the red. Harry got from the bluest of the blue to the reddest of the red. We're waiting on Michael to do so. Go to realestateforlife.org. Literally, let's, let's talk now about pagan reason for divorce number two, desertion. So in, in both your guys' very articulate answers that, that need to be contended with, you essentially said, well, desertion. Desertion is not a good reason for divorce, or I can't be the party to desert my state. I would say the founders would look at that and say, you owe nothing to a geography. Geography, the land is idiosyncratic. There's no other spot of land like the spot of land you were born on the earth. I get it. It's utterly unique, utterly idiosyncratic. Who wants to leave it? Well, it depends where you're born. It turns out where you're born in a beautiful place. But even if you were, I don't know why folks think California is beautiful. I certainly don't. I like trees. They don't, they don't even have a tree in California. And um, I was happy to get out. But the point is a lot of my family and friends talk about it as if what I did is desertion or what would amount to desertion is leaving where you were born. And people will say, Tim, you're into subsidiarity. How are you into subsidiarity and at the same time voting with your feet? Well, at the essence of subsidiarity is finding a place you truly love and making it yours and a place where there's a future. The problem is that desertion applies not to the marriage between the citizens and the government. It's not, it's not that we deserted first. It's that the governments of the several states in blue states have deserted you. What your state government is supposed to be doing is protecting you from the federal overarching tyranny. Like, Harry, Harry, in your first answer, you cited, can you just leave a marriage? James Madison gives an, art, um, an argument that has to be contended with. It's like, look, joining a union is like joining a marital union. It's, there was no thing, La Cosa Nostra, before. Then you enter into it, and there is now a thing. So you would be deserting to leave it. And that, that argument has to be contended with. He makes the argument that the Constitution, La Cosa Nostra, is part confederated and part consolidated. That is part of its national, part of its federal. Uh, the parts that, that's confederated can easily be broken because really the Constitution is 13 separate peoples uh, as parties. It is a, a document of 13 separate parties. It's not each of us individually that enter into some sort of compact with the federal government. It's the state. So because it's confederate, I, I would say, yeah, this, this isn't much like marriage, where it's somehow vi a violation of the sacred to leave what was formerly two separate bodies, now they're one common flesh. It's not desertion, especially, 
It might be a distinction of degree rather than kind. But especially, my friends, if your state government in your blue state has deserted its sacred duty to you, which is to keep the overarching federal government out, and the state government's duty to you is to protect your rights as against the national government, if it's done that the way all the blue states have, there's nothing left to desert. And furthermore, I would just say this. What are you, aside from that idiosyncratic, unique bit of land and the fact that there's, there's family history bound up in that land, you're essentially standing by an empty shell if you're in a really, really blue state. Because America, whatever state it was, even if it wasn't one of the original 13, the last states were, were um, entered into the Union when it was still America. If you go to a blue state, it's no longer even America. So you're defending an empty shell. And voting with your feet, getting to a really red state, is the best place to really robustly affirm localism, to love where you're at, and to build a future where you're at. What say you, Harry? Yeah, well, I, I sort of agree. Um, I don't think if the states left the Union now, if Mississippi left the Union now, it would not be a desertion. I think that would be a just assertion of its sovereign states' rights against the insanity of an abusive spouse, <laughs> an abusive federal government. Yeah. Um, and I do think that, I think we've, well, you and I sort of had this experience, is that no matter how much California might have been home, yeah. it starts to cease to feel that way. Yeah. And um, if you move to the right state, you suddenly feel at home. I think you and I both think this is the Shire. I mean, we think we are, mm-hmm. we are at home here. In a, in a way, I was in, in exile, I used to call it in Virginia for the longest time. Yeah. And my eldest sons went to very Virginia schools, VMI and Hampton, Sydney. Wow. And, um, but I feel much more at home in Mississippi. As do I. Than I ever did in Virginia. And I, yeah, I mean, this is not our eternal home, obviously, but, but it'll do until then. Uh, I'm, and I, there is an argument made, too, that in California, we're always concerned about both liberal immigrants from the East <laughs> and illegal immigration, of course, transforming the state in really radical ways, super radical ways demographically. Yeah. Um, but there's also this other current, much smaller, but where people are moving with their feet voluntarily. One could make the argument that they actually bring out more of the essence of the states that are still red. For, in a very practical way, for instance, I agree. if you look at the data in Texas, the cal- people worry about, oh, these Californians are going to come in and Californianize Texas. Now, actually, most of the Californians moving to Texas are Republicans, and they're actually supporting the Republican majorities in elections. Um, they're actually a, a help, not a hindrance to Texas staying red. I don't know if that's true for every state. I know for a fact it's true for Texas, and I think you and I are here to make sure that Mississippi doesn't fall to it. I think it's unlikely, but, <laughs> but we'll do our part. Yeah. Amen. That's it. That's uh, here. Here. I'm with you. This feels like home. this felt like home the second week we were here. Yeah, did, and, and you moved a year after us. I, I was just talking to your wife about it. Same thing, right? Felt like home immediately. California. We went back last summer. Didn't feel like home. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, along the same theme, I think that uh, we have competing duties, right? We we have competing duties to to faith, family, flag. And ideally, these things should be commensurate and in line with one another. And what we're talking about now, it seems like, is how do we honor those first two 
as its intention with the third, right? You know, how is it that faith, honoring our duties to faith and, and family is, has now become increasingly um, out of alignment with, with duty to flag or the, the contractual, contractual aspect. I guess nation and state can obviously be, be two separate things, obviously. Uh, but at least the, the contractual elements of the state apparatus now are making the realization of honoring our duties to faith and family increasingly difficult. So, yeah, the question is, how do you, how do you bring those all into an alignment? Uh, I think voting with your feet can matter if that is what serves, the, serves those things. Um, but was it Yogi Berra that said it, it ain't over till it's over? So I think coming from a blue state, I still have hope that Massachusetts can be turned around, you know? So maybe, maybe I'm going to be a, uh, I can start an underground railroad between Massachusetts <laughs> and Mississippi and, you know, go back and forth. Uh, but I, in, at least where I'm from, I think that there's, I don't think it's, it's totally far gone. I think it could be reversed. You know, it's, it's all just a matter of leadership and, and will. So you guys don't, I'm going to ask you follow up. Do either of you subscribe to ratchet effect theory, which is strongly what I subscribe to the founding fathers. I'll just define it really quickly. The founding fathers all run through at Richmond in the ratification convention in 1788. These guys were all tutored by George with of Virginia. You know, four of our first five presidents were Virginians. The Virginians were the genius and they were all great, uh, classicists. They were, superbly trained in the classics. So they run through a history of about 10 different republics, according to Republican theory and Republican history, that all, once they gave their liberties away, like Benjamin Franklin says, could not be got back. And this is the case. It's a ratchet, you know? You show your little, your son who doesn't know a ratchet, you're trying to go back this way, it just clicks. All you're doing is you're moving the screw in one direction. And I subscribe strongly, like our founding fathers did, to ratchet effect theory for liberty. Once liberty is given away, the new right, capital N, capital R in this country, the post-liberals don't even like liberty anymore. They want to give it to the government. They're, they're, they're trying to give it to governments like China or North Korea as fast as they can. They'll openly celebrate these things. That's a scary development, but a different topic. Do you guys subscribe to ratchet effect theory? Because I hear a lot of talk about a grand reclamation. And according to our founding fathers who run through the history of uh, the Republic of England, Little Malta, Ven uh, the Venetian Republic, the Swiss cantons, uh, the Greek Republic, the Roman Republic, once government scope gets too big and what's, once the scale of governing gets too big, such that liberty is beaten back and diminished, it can never be got back. So do you, do you guys subscribe to ratchet effect theory? It's it's, it's important question. Uh, yeah, no, I, you may very well be right, but I would uh, offer a different image, the old slippery slope image, <laughs> just because it offers some hope. And I think there is some hope. And when I'm looking for, for hope, um, I actually find it in some of the um, younger conservatives who, unlike say, the Mitt Romney, so the Republicans, uh, much of the Republican Party, they actually know what the stakes are. They have woken up to the fact that this isn't their parents' or grandparents' America. Um, and they know that um, if they're going to win, they've got to realize it's the first principles that really matter. Yeah. Changing tax policy, great. Yeah. Regulation, great. 
but we got to solve this woman problem first. You know? yeah. and, and, the, and these other problems about uh, transgenderism and all these other things. The, it's guys like Michael Knowles, our common friend, yep. who I saw him interviewed recently, and he said that somebody asked him, what sort of country would you like to see? And his, his answer was, look, that country will never happen unless this country returns to God. And I think that is ultimately, the answer is that until you win that argument, if you win that argument, the other things can fall into play. If you don't win that argument, the ratchet effect is going to grind you into the ground, into the dirt. Yeah, that, that sounds correct. Uh, and and his, history and, and various uh, degenerating republics uh, have have borne that out. Uh, I think there's something also in a, even in the name of conservatism, right? It it almost concedes that that ratchet effect is already there, right? Like, okay, the progressives are going to head in a particular direction, and we're going to conserve things as they do. But it it already concedes the direction of travel. So now the 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 meta political debate it's merely over the speed at which that direction of travel, that ratchet, occurs. And it seems like ideologically and practically what needs to happen is that there needs to be an actual reversing of direction, not just a slowing down. And present mainstream conservatism, it's all whatever, uh, liberalism going the speed limit, as folks are saying. And, and so to reverse the ratchet, uh, I think you need a an easily digestible view that people can get behind that is actually a change in direction of the, the metaphysical direction of travel, not just the speed. So you, Harry mentioned in answer number two to question number two about the, you know, should we desert our states or would leaving our states even qualify as desertion? I say, no, I say, Blue state governments have already deserted you, their, their sacred duties to you, the citizens of the several states. You mentioned abuse. And abuse in, in, in the top seven reasons that the pagans give for divorcing their wives, abuse takes two forms. It's reason number three and reason number four. So there's psychological abuse that can be cited by, by pagans, from one pagan to another, that will, in both of their minds, justify a divorce between man and wife. Psychological abuse... And physical abuse. So these are reasons number three and four. I'm going to do them both at once. In this nation, I, I, know, I know Michael's going to like three and four. In this nation, psychological abuse means the psyops that have clearly now been reputed, well-reputed, widely popularly known to be run on us, the people, by the government. Uh, there's some sort of collusion between big tech and the government to... Uh, instantiate a trans psychological operation which is messing people up and there is like proof galore that this is happening alex jones used to talk about this sort of thing as an information war and folks thought he was crazy but he's been vindicated a hundred times over so um why oh why even though gender dysphorics weaponized gender dysphorics uh constitute something like one out of every 600 people, depending on what numbers you look at, five or 600 people. Why is this uh, every third show, uh, the topic of every third show on Netflix now is trans, weaponized gender dysphorics? Because 
big tech is running together with the government, particularly the national government, in conjunction with world governments coming out of places like the UN and the WEF. Psychological abuse, and that is what psychological operations are. So that's a, that's a good reason to part ways, trans, with our, with our national government. Physical abuse, the closest thing to physical abuse, in, in a place like Canada or Australia, fellow first world nations, they're actually getting abused. If you make a tranny joke, they'll show up at your door. We were talking about this when I picked you up from, from uh, the airport yesterday. I didn't even know that. You and Steph were telling me. But here, the physical abuse is restricted to abusive, overarching federal taxation. I agree with Harry. It's a boring topic. It's not the number one or even the number five reason for a divorce. But bear in mind, folks, that because of some very small excise taxes that were being technically legally levied on the colonists that amounted to well under 1% of most of their income, there was no income tax coming from England. They had very small taxes, just a tax on the breakfast beverage. These liberty-obsessed mad dogs started dumping tea into the sea and pouring hot tea down the throats of English lords and tarring and feathering the English government. They were really the kind that protected themselves. So the physical abuse here in America is nearly 50% federal taxation when you add up all of the federal taxation, including the immoral income taxation, a capitation which was expressly prohibited until the uh, 16th Amendment or whatever it was. So psychological abuse and a physical abuse. Harry, what say you? Do these things constitute real reasons to separate from the Fed? Yes. If there, yes. If you want to, ultimately, yes. I mean, when I most am feeling the desire to divorce the United States, it's when I'm watching baseball or college football on TV and the commercials are all yeah. hammering me with their wokeness. I just kind of want to throw my beer or whatever I'm drinking I know. At, the, at the screen and say, get me out of here. I'm in Mississippi. Leave me alone. Um, and but of course, even worse than that is uh, in when the Fed start knocking on your door, as they've been doing on many Trump appointees for apparently not uh, sufficient reasons. So no, I think uh, emotional, psychological, physical abuse by the government is r real by the government and the entire woke apparatus. Mm, yeah, um, and that is if there's any reason that would would legitimize a national divorce. That is number one in my mind. Yeah, I think this is, uh, those points are both correct. And it's, like you said, it's the whole woke apparatus. So it is the anarcho-tyranny model where from the, it's either top-down pressure from the official state, or if that's not pressing down on you, it's, it's Antifa and company from below, right? So there, that's that's the um, the anarcho element of it. So there, there are two features of, threat uh, that I think are hemming in a lot of people, um, as well as, I would say, uh, St Stockholm Syndrome-affected uh, liberals that, like myself earlier, when I was growing up, like, oh, I care about the poor. I care about not being racist. I'm, I'm a liberal. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm for the little guy. And then it's like once you ascribe to that, you want to remain psychologically consistent. Yeah. I opted into this relationship. Now, now it's gone completely. The 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 um, perniciousness of it has become so pronounced. But I I committed myself to, to this as an identity. How how do I reconcile that um, cognitive dissonance? 
And I think that's where a lot of center-left liberals are right now, where they, they can put up a mental firewall and say, well, that's the far left. You know, I'm, I'm just about whatever, uh, you know, uh, universal basic income. And it's like, I guess if that, that's what helps you sleep at night. But the, the totality of these things is really, they're all yoked together. It's the anarcho-tyranny. Anarcho-tyranny. That is actually, yeah. I think, the crucial point here. And it shows complete bad faith. Yeah, it does. Because, yes, when our guys go riding in the streets and destroying everything mm-hmm. and burning everything down, killing people, well, that's okay, you know, because they were oppressed before or whatever. Right, right. But they're doing it for good reasons. And um, so lawlessness on the one hand. On the other hand, yes, <laughs> metaphorically, you, you, you jaywalk and you get, you know, hurled in solitary confinement for six months. Mm-hmm. When, the, when, the, when the judicial system and the, and the governmental system is so overtly, I guess it doesn't matter, matter, so prejudiced against the even application of the laws. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's a clear violation of of faith, of justice, obviously easily defined. So I think that's anarcho-tyranny is the problem. Ironically, it's a violation of the Equal Protection Clause, which you hear me decry most often. The Equal Protection Clause has been jurisprudentially transformed into the protection of equal laws, which it, it does not, is not intended to mean. But it is a violation of the Equal Protection Clause to, uh, to, in our lawfare, codify anarcho-tyranny, or some have called it, called it bio-Leninism. Um, Michael, is it, just, just as a follow-up, it, is it fair to say a lot, of, a lot of your friends, family, people you grew up with in the Massachusetts area are in that headspace now where they're center leftists that aren't uh, a mix. Say, yeah. yeah, a mix of... Yeah, yeah, mix, yeah. mix of center leftists or center leftists that suddenly realized this isn't the party of JFK anymore, right? right. Uh, this isn't a, 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 a Democrat, uh, anti-communist, Catholic leader or, or, or party that, you know, of, of that time period. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's, it's a mix of people that are waking up and that are still kind of stuck in that headspace. Well, so you, you and I, Mike, are going to be writing when you're visiting this trip here in Mississippi. We're going to be vis- writing the companion piece to this show, the you know case for national divorce. And one thing that we'll have to hammer out anytime we co we we co-authored. Don't go to college. Go buy it right now. And and here's here's our publisher. Mr. Yes, Harry please Crocker, do. please, please do. do. <laughs> but when you co-author, you're a great co-author, by the way. And, and, and Michael's, Michael's a fun dude to work with. He lived with us uh, as we finished this book in January, and then we're excited to get it out. We agreed about so much, but we're coming at this from di- very different perspectives. I'm like a lifelong conservative. I'm just, I want to push the Overton window, you know, right, right, right. And, you know, Michael's coming at it from the perspective um, much more like the one he just described, a right-wing perspective that's like, holy cow, what's become my my faith, my flag, and my future, in a sense. And um, so you have to hammer stuff out as co-authors. One thing we're going to have to square as we write this article is like, in your in your second answer on desertion, um, and I know in your heart and in your mind, you are working out still day by day, week by week. Is it desert? Does it qualify as desertion to leave where I grew up? It's a real question. That and I, to me, it's the most valid countervailing argument. But 
I still say overcome it. That's why I'm not in California. But I think the way to overcome this, I want to hear what, what, what Harry says and what you say, is an argument by definition. What is a republic? Give the one that the entire classical Republican theorists give, the entire uh, palladium of classical Republican theorists, I should say, from Plato, Aristotle, Seneca, Cicero, St. Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas, the School of Salamanca guys like Suarez and Bellarmine all the way through Montesquieu, and, and, and throw in the uh, Magna Carta as well, Magna Carta theorists and the Magna Carta writers. They all say a republic is a res publica. And this gets us to pagan reason for divorce between man and wife. Number five, bigamy. I say we don't have a res publica, which is, if you don't speak Latin, it means a commonly held thing around which everything in your life is man and wife. Everything else will revolve. The res publica is that shared thing. And it is, of course, for a Christian, Jesus is at the center of your marriage, or the sacrament is at the center of the marriage. It's no different in a real republic. Everyone has to be the same religion and the same morality. That should even go for sects of religion, which is why eight of the original 13 states had establishments of a particular sect of Christianity. All of the 13 states were Christian, but eight of the 13 had an officially established sect of Christianity. Big, I say bigamy, which is the reason number five given by the pagans, even though these days pagans are getting more woke and I think they like bigamy. They call it polyamory, right? Five, ten years ago, they would cite it as a reason for divorce, meaning I guess they didn't like it. Well, I say the, the other woman here is that as a nation, we never decided what is our res publica. And that's because we don't have a res publica. We're supposed to all be one Christian nation, and we should even share a sect. I think it worked out very well that Christian America was divided into, let's say, 13 polities or mini-republics. And the mini-republics, being more local and close to home, were the ones where the true res publica was shared, the way of life, the common culture, even how you act or dress in a certain season, and of course, the, the statewide religion. Here, it would be Baptist. I mean, you would be outnumbered, Harry. But, <laughs> but you go to a place like Maryland, and it, it, it might plausibly be Catholic in the olden days. So I say the best argument of all of these is reason number five. We are bigamists because there are two fundamental res publicas in the red states and the blue states. Whether or not, if, if there's some great divorce, all the red states band together or they all became individually their own sovereign nations, I don't care. They, all the red states have at least Christianity as the res publica. That's one thing. All the blue states have antichristic worship. Just do the opposite of what Christian nations want, what Christian people want, what Christian churches teach. Well, there's only one Christian church, the Catholic Church. And that send, tends to be the res publica of the blue states. Do the opposite of what the Roman Catholic Church has invoked for 2,000 years. So I say this is the best reason of all these very strong reasons for a national divorce. We simply don't have a res publica, even if you would keep it. So fittingly, your best argument is one I never thought of about bigamy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but, um, but I, think, I think you're right. Um, I've often thought that, yes, what defines 
wokester liberalism these days is, it's, what's the common thing? It's always against Christianity. You think about where all these weird things come from. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's essentially it. It's been that way actually for a surprisingly long time. It's just it was less pronounced in the past. Um, but also this idea of not having the shared common foundation or values, whatever, that too goes back with you know, the chants at Stanford, hey, hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go. That's sort of the, 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 maybe the polyamory you were mentioning, is that they're always hearkening after other gods, other cultures, and discounting their own and the most recent manifest, manifest, manifestation of this sorry, is um, critical race theory. Yeah. Right? Where you, you are literally trying to undo the common understanding of the American founding and replace it with something based on a grievance, mm -hmm. a grievance against the entire structure of the society. Um, and I will say, too, that that argument was made to me, not more subtly, but I think to many people more subtly, in we were talking about this earlier, in unraveling the common American understanding of the Civil War, which until fairly recently was of noble combatants on both sides. Grant and Lee, they're both heroes. Jeb Stuart Custer, they're both heroes. Different ways, they both had their reasons. And you had mainstream, Harvard, liberal establishment, famous historians, Henry Steele Cominger, Samuel Elliott Morrison, who would say Lincoln, a great American hero, but boy, those guys in the South, weren't they kind of fabulous? Weren't they kind of like those neat underdogs? It sounds like you're reading Gone with the Wind, and you're reading liberals yeah. writing about this. And that, to my mind, that's not only more accurate, but it was a patriotic, unifying view of American history, which got undone with incredible rapidity recently. Yeah. The statues coming down, everything. And at a cost that I think many, many, many mainstream conservatives still do not understand, that this was inevitable. You knock down Lee and Jackson and all these other guys, and you're knocking down Jefferson and Washington and everybody else. The whole thing comes undone. Yes. Yeah, yeah, there's no, there's no in principle stopping mechanism to that momentum. Uh, but yeah, regarding the, the, the bigamy point, yeah, I just, I think that's correct. And I return to the, the Tomaszewski quote that, that I mentioned before. Yeah, we're, we're on two different books at this point. It's, it's not even like there is a, uh, I don't know what common ground there is. We're, we're, what common ground? If in principle you're going to try to find common ground, okay, fine, well, let's hear it. <laughs> what common ground? We, right. we can't even define the word woman. <laughs> There's no common ground between 2 plus 2 equals 4 and 2 plus 2 equals 5. It's not 4.5. It's, it's either 4 or it's 5. Yeah, it's binary. This is, but wait, so let me, take, let me take both of you back to your answers for question number two, or reason for divorce number two, desertion, where understandably so, I think all of us are the most uncomfortable deserting our former states, even though Harry and I got out. Um, think about it this way. Given what you said, I think propositionally speaking, I could make a syllogism equal, e easily, Mike, that shows that if we don't live in a res publica, if essentially there are invisible political lines that are, have been erected between blue states and red states, Christian states and anti-Christic states, which is essentially what we all believe, which is what essentially what everyone knows in their heart, given the tranny stuff then you're not deserting anything, even on the 
more inclusive definition of desertion. You know, when you're worried about the Great Commission, Harry, think about this. I'm, I really want to push on this because I know this is the most powerful reason to be against the, the case for national divorce. Or, yeah, we, we're charged with bringing the gospel to the whole world. Shouldn't we bring it to wokesters here? It's like, well, yeah. And, and therefore, there are international missiological evangelical missions, right? Where people go to Iran, China, and suffer persecution. That is the equivalent of what you're doing if you try to evangelize a blue state. But we're no more politically accountable for what happens in a blue state, in my view, in the view I'm pitching and I'm trying to grow, than you are for the, the abortion policy in China, right? Because you're like, hey, we don't want China's abortion laws here in Mississippi. We're the, we're the uh, Dobbs versus Jackson state. We're Wait. the state that did it all. Yeah, we're the state Come that did it all down. right after we moved here, Harry. Right after we moved here, Dobbs uh, ended abortion. You're, you're welcome, everybody. Happy, happy birthday from a couple of Mississippians. But you see my point? I mean, California is China to me. New York is China to me. Like, do I want babies in California or New York or China to be slaughtered at the hands of some antichristic elites who do everything they do because they want to kill humans in the name of population control? Of course not. I care about those babies. But there's nothing that can be done. And you guys, everyone, not just you guys, but everyone out there that hasn't thought this all the way through, perhaps, or just has a countervailing view on mine, everyone's comfortable saying, hey, China's got its own laws. It's over the sovereign border. Well, same thing with the blue states, right? So is, yeah, is there yeah. some sort of response to that? We don't have a rest publica. Uh, yeah, I actually have a friend who's a, uh, who's a Vietnam veteran, helicopter pilot, reached the rank of general, became a professor, and... Uh, Southerner, always interested in civil war, uh, but never thought secession was something that was viable now. Until you might remember this. Uh, this is going back a little bit, but when New York uh, had its most radical abortion laws passed, it was essentially, uh, arguably, uh, legalized infanticide. He and they were celebrating. Even there were scenes of them like all clapping and jumping up and down and and huzzahing this. And he he when he saw that on TV, he thought. I know I share nothing with these people. Right. If you if you can if you can give a hallelujah for or for killing a baby, uh, I'm sorry we have nothing in common. And so yes, the divorce is is uh, is advisable. I also say, argue a little bit against myself. I was thinking about this while you were talking. You could argue against my Great Commission argument, which was otherwise incredibly profound. Um, <laughs> that uh, this actually I was thinking in my own thinking. The reason I could not go back to California, in part, this is being a little bit metaphorical, was because it had become an asylum, right? It, yeah, yeah. It, 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 it had become an asylum with an abusive government. I could not, in my libertarian uh, instincts, go along with that, or my freedom-loving instincts go along with that. And, it's, and we're not obliged. I mean, you can't have guilty by reason of insanity. or divorced by reason of insanity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's, I think, I think, yes, I would go along with that. I like it. So in my situation, I think there's at least two elements that are disanalogous. Uh, so one, I, I don't know what the situation in China is firsthand. I do know what the situation is in my, my hometown, Massachusetts, right? So the, the probability of things being turned around, I think, in Massachusetts is hopeful in the long run. 
Uh, so I don't think it's as far gone as China. And then two, it's, I, I'm not a pilgrim going to, to China to to evangelize. It's, it's my home. So uh, that's at least two, two disanalogous features that I see here. But if it's not a republic, if, if we don't have a res publica in, in the, I mean, oh, there's also sort of an ace in the hole argument that I have that all of the Republican theorists always used. You can't have a res publica that's larger than 50 or 100,000 people. And it's really common sense. So, I, I mean, so the, the way to make this point would be to say, I made the point, I think, in a previous show, Honolulu to Washington, D.C., that's globalism. That's not nationalism. So all of these, the, the new right, who it has a lot of healthy cultural developments. They don't just want to talk about taxes. They want to talk about the culture of, of ethics that uh, a polity is supposed to uh, inculcate, which is where the term comes from. They think that there's a middle term. There's localism or subsidiarity. There's nationalism. There's globalism. They think they've selected the middle. What's known as nationalism, when you have a continent-sized nation, is just globalism. So me and, me and Seamus uh, Cogman were talking about this the other day. Like, okay, at what point, show me a globe. I needed, I needed to grab my globe here. Okay, so if we expand our nation, let's call it China, because this is what they might want to do. They don't have much of an imperial past, but they, they seem to be wanting to be imperial now. China expands its nation to all of the Eastern Hemisphere. Okay, so now they're running half of the world. Well, the new right should be satisfied by this, right? Because it's not globalism, it's nationalism. Okay, what if they expand to three quarters of the world, three of the, the hemispheres, you know? Is that, will they admit that that's globalism now? No, it's just a nation. It's not the whole globe. What if it's 99% of the globe? Only uh, little Malta is not owned by China. It's still not global. No, it becomes globalism the minute the reach of government is out of control. It, it, the, the reach of the government is not causally and locally connected to that which is a, a legislated or adjudicated. Right, so Honolulu to Washington D.C. is five thousand miles. I checked. FDR, our problems are far older than just wokeism. FDR and the the court and the Congress under FDR were literally legislating under Wickert, Wickert v. Filburn jurisprudence that a farmer couldn't own couldn't eat his own crops. You know this, Harry. You can't eat what you grow. That violates the Interstate Commerce Clause. So. From Washington, D.C., a globe away, 5,000 miles away, Congress can say, and the Supreme Court can interpret what Congress hath said, that a Honolulu farmer can't eat his own crop. That's globalism. That's not nationalism. So a res publica can't be larger than 50 or 100,000 people because you can't care about something that's a globe away or half a globe away. So... I would just say this is how you, you, you crack the whip on folks that are like, well, maybe, maybe we can turn it around. Well, well, maybe so, but we already admitted we don't have a republic, right? Do we believe that res publicas are possible? I believe that res publicas are possible in a non-LARPy way as long as they're small enough. Do you guys, do you believe in a res publica? I think they are possible, and I know the argument very well of 
size matters. But I, um, I would actually dispute that. I mean, I see all the reasons in favor of it. They're commonsensical reasons. Um, and I don't want to hijack this conversation in a dramatic way. But um, you know, when America manifest destiny, spreading across the continent, spread an American ideal. I mean, you, you were spreading a common sense of what this country was about over a vast territory, and it, it worked for a while. I would say the British Empire governed, it was the biggest empire in, in world history, the greatest proponent of freedom and free trade and abolishing slavery, expanding Magna Carta-like principles all over the place. Again, I think that's how you win. There's a famous book back in the 60s. It was called uh, Suicide of the West by James Burnham. And um, guys of my generation, we were all into international affairs because it was still the Cold War era. And that was like the big thing. You had to, that was part of citizenship, was knowing how to be, you know, fight the commies overseas. But he made the point that, look, let's look at a map. You see Western civilization spreading, spreading, growing through the 19th century. And now you're seeing it retreat here, there, here, there. And he says, this is what liberalism is. Liberalism is the thing that justifies this retreat, tells you it's actually a good thing, and is this a sort of a lubricant to uh, international defeat and eventually dissolution. Um, and I tend to take the Burnhamite view. Um, healthy, healthy civilizations grow unhealthy civilizations collapse, they die, they, re, they retreat, they Geographically dribble. grow? Geographically grow, so, too. When America was spread across the continent, it was, it was a confident society, confident in its own values. But the growth kills the values, by definite, by the terms that we just agreed on in points one, two, three, I four. don't know that it's so inevitable. Um, I mean, Texas was not an original part of 13 colonies. Texas... So far, opposed values. You know, the Wyoming, the Dakotas, way far away. They're part of America. People in the Falkland Islands, <laughs> way far away, they still think of themselves as British. People in Zimbabwe, to give their courts some legitimacy, they put on white wigs. Why is that? Because they harken back to an empire that few of them have ever seen. But I wasn't saying that, um, I wasn't saying that there's not a political ontological reality to the way that people are trained to think of themselves. I'm, I'm not denying that at all. People, people might wear wigs because the, the Brits did. The Indians used to think of themselves proudly as part of uh, an empire that, that's far away. I'm saying that the real res publica, a republic has to be dedicated to one thing, like where your, where your heart is, there your treasure is. And if a nation state is committed to one principle and it should be Christianity that it's committed to in, in a local way, you know, Southern, Southern American Christianity was agrarian. How can you expand that to a nation, to, to states far away that aren't as Christian or, and aren't at all agrarian, have a totally different climate, have a totally different way and understanding of life. If you say, well, it's just free trade, and it's yeah, it's the it, fact that we wear wigs. Yeah, exactly. You're killing, you're diminishing the notion. No, but there's two things. One is, historically, faith has followed the flag since the day of the Roman Empire. So that's not unusual. Um, and second of all, 
if it depends how you run your empire and if you can run it on sort of de facto Republican Federalist principles. One of my favorite stats about the British Empire is they ran the Sudan, vast part of the African continent, with fewer colonial administrators um, than in, in numbers of people than make up a NFL football roster. The, the British Empire was run on a shoestring. It was run with the sort of government we would approve of. Super small. It was a super small government. Very few people. The, the British army, I think, in India at the high tide was maybe 100,000 people. They, there were fewer British soldiers in India than there are current bureaucrats in California. <laughs> but, it's in, but Harry, uh, as, as Catholics, we believe the words of Pius XI in Quadragesimo Anno. It's inherently immoral. For in, it's a, a grave injustice. This means it's the equivalent of a collective moral sin for uh, a more far away government to do the task that a more local government is competent to do. So the, the sedan to be run by a far away government, they, they're equipped to do all of the tasks that they need. They know their way of life. They're going to be inherently more competent to adjudicate what they need to do. The Brits don't know. Well, this is why empires are immoral. Now it, it, but you have to remember, the guy, you have guys on the ground, district commissioners. They ruled through local chieftains. It really was sort of like federalism or subsidiarity. The things they were concerned about were not interfering with most of the traditional ways. They actually upheld them. It was certain lines you can't cross, like murder, or like famously in India, suti, widow burning. It was, it was certain lines of, they would have argued, Christian morality, we're not going to let you do that. Otherwise, yes, you sultan of whatever, you, you, you're in your province. You're an ally of the, of the British government. Um, so it was very hands-off. And it, this has not only implications for the individuals, for those widows who lived, those slaves who were freed, those sorts of things. It has global implications. And I would cite the world wars. If you look at the number of Indians who volunteered for the British Army in World War II, I don't have the can't now remember. I used to write about this all the time. It was one or two million people. That's a hell of a lot to throw into a global struggle. Um, and when you think about in the Cold War, having all these allies, the reason why we had all these allies around us from these other countries was because they'd inherited the values of the West. If we don't set the standards for the world and China sets the standards for the world, even down here in Mississippi, we're going to be in trouble. It, it, the guy who's the top dog does matter. It matters that the dollar is paramount in the world. Um, and I think we'll be very badly surprised if our, the place we take for granted, America's predominance in the world, um, is taken away from us. But then, okay, so this brings us to reasons six and seven. I like how all these have, have dovetailed. It's beautiful. Reasons six and seven that the pagans cite for man-woman divorce is infidelity and cruelty. So uh, r without missing a beat, I was, I'm just couching reasons six and seven and what I was going to say to respond to the point you just made, Harry. I would say every single government in the whole history of the world with with a decent knowledge of history far better knowledge of philosophy but a decent knowledge of history you have a better knowledge of history than me harry every single government in the history of the world that grew to become a colonial styled far away government got bespoiled by it because pius the 11th in what he writes in quadragesimo anno is so correct that it's inherently immoral 
not to have local rule for far. And by by this, I mean it became uh, reason number six, a, a, an expositor of infidelity and an expositor of reason number seven for divorce, cruelty. And in the analogy, I would say infidelity shows that when you're caught up, when you're a house divided against itself, you have red states and blue states, Christian red states that worship God, the true God, and blue states that worship Baal or Satan or whatever it is. What will always preponderate with faraway government? The Baal worship. Every single nation that attempted to be uh, colonially governed from far away was always given over to, as it got bigger, infidelity, where atheism preponderates. That's why far off Washington, D.C. government is all either atheistic or outright Luciferian. There's no Christian governance that comes out of that. And it's cruel also. Vulgar displays of power, you know, like New York's laws telling you what size of a Coke you can buy. We get that especially out of the federal government, Wickert v. Filburn. Cruel, vulgar displays of oppression. Like, you can't, you can't eat your own wheat, farmers, during the uh, Great Depression. So I would ask you, say whatever you want about infidelity and cruelty, how it applies, but also I would ask, is there one historical example of a nation that ever expanded its borders, expanded its reaches, the Catholic Church says inherently immorally, and didn't become queered and morally corrupted. I'd say there are none. As they got bigger, they all became evil. I think it's, I would look at it the other way around. Because um, when you think of Britain, why did the British Empire, again, the biggest empire in the world, history, uh, what was the ultimate reason for its collapse? Well, really two. One was a practical thing, they couldn't afford it. Um, but the second thing was this growing sense that they didn't deserve it. Mm. And part of this was maybe healthy. They were there to spread British ideals, and those included self-government. So it was, in a way, kind of an inevitable thing. But part of it could be the sort of decadence, anti... I think it, it, it's, it's what... You, you can have corruption in a small town, right, when you have a mayor who's abusive and owns a sheriff and whatnot. But... I don't think it's inherent in the size. Britain was more libertarian in the best sense of the word when it had an empire than when it lost its empire. It had a better, it had more Christian-driven purpose when it had an empire than since then. Um, and I think you could argue the same about some other European empires, that the retreat is both a physical, political, military retreat. It's also a moral retreat. That's, I think, part of the argument that James Burnham was making. They're losing confidence in Western civilization. Who am I to tell a Bushman in South Africa how to live his life? It's just as good as my life. It's this creeping sort of, it's relativism by other means, which you saw kind of in the death of, recent death of Queen Elizabeth um, and who came after her. It was these like these third world liberationists who were saying this horrible oppressive thing that uh, you know, destroyed our lives, but gave us, they didn't say this part, gave us the English language and uh, access to Western everything. Um, so that, that, I would just look at it. I, I, I think it is wrong to put the emphasis on size, growth. That's not the issue. The, it's, it's, like, it's like original sin. You can have corruption at any level of government, at any size. And you could, it, I don't think it's an, it's an inherent thing. I think America, when it was growing, was a... America in the 19th century was a healthier society than it is today. Mm -hmm.
so yeah, I'm trying to think of any anything new to to add to this. Uh, I feel like you guys have hit those two themes pretty pretty thoroughly. Um, I guess my my main thing I'm trying to get out of this right now is is just the pragmatics of it. I mean, we can look to to different themes within other historical expansions and empires that became decadent and collapsed and then it's a question of like now at, at in 2022 where are we and and what can we work with um and i think uh yeah on that point actually I, this is where I, I may sound like i'm arguing out of both sides of my mouth but i'm not which is that i am totally not on board with the whole neocon thing as it became known or trying to transform iraq or afghanistan right, yeah. into you know, Delaware. I mean, that, that's, that strikes me as a people doing it the wrong way around. And it's partly because the wrong people have gotten on top. The wrong values have gotten on top. And the fact they're going to go fly rainbow colored flags in Afghanistan is mm. obviously absurd. Yeah. So I think there are, there are differences. <laughs> I mean, the, the history matters. The period matters. But that's a big part of it is the values of the people who are doing this at the time. They're dramatically, if we look at the sort of globalism today, it's an, it's an entirely different thing from what um, the British Empire was or, some of these other, or, or Manifest Destiny was for the United States. But so like, I, yeah, I guess this is probably the point we've located here between three guys that almost exclusively agree. I, the point I push on every classical theor Republican theorist that I've ever looked at from Plato onward through Aristotle, through all the Roman guys, through all the Stoics, up to Montesquieu, especially Montesquieu, they say the government has to be small. There's not one of them. You can't find one. Plato through Montesquieu that says size size doesn't matter. Uh, they all literally are like, okay, we have three guys in a room. We want to decide, are we going to order pizza or Chinese food? Let's just vote. That works. You get a million guys in the room. Do you have the same voice to affect change? No. Because, like, in three guys, it's not just the majority matters. You get the cool and deliberate sense of the people that Madison talked about by caucusing. Like, maybe I want pizza, Harry wants Chinese, and Michael's like, well, I don't know, convince me. Make me a case. He, he gets to enjoy hearing arguments. That's what, what small government is really about. That's what subsidiarity is really about. Mo small monarchy. Monarchy should be small, too, by the way. The most blessed form of government in theory is monarchy, and monarchies are not meant to be big either. Subsidiarity applies to monarchy, republics, and aristocracies. And all I was saying is you can't find one of these Republican theorists that says, you know, well, England expanded and it's all about self-government and it expanded so large in size as nothing. How do you do self-government globe-wide? That's the very point. You can do self-government with your neighbors, with the people in this room, this is our little republic because we can talk to each other. How do you do self-government with somebody who we've never met in Washington, D.C.? The theory is called virtual representation. And I think it's what carries America, Great Britain, all the, the great republics that had too short a lifespan, like America. America's dead. America didn't even have three centuries, whereas little Venice, 11 centuries in the sun. Uh, Magna Carta England had about eight or nine centuries in the sun. Little Malta, 1200, uh, 1,200 years, 12 centuries. The Swiss Cantons had about eight centuries. 
the big countries grow too fast and die. And that, I, I, I would say we've located where most even very thinking, thoughtful, far-right conservatives disagree. It's on this issue of size itself. So I think an important distinction here that we need to keep track of is that there, there's big in two cents, right? There's big in the sense of governmental apparatus, and then there's big in the sense of actual geographic land. That I say is, one follows right, the other. I, not necessarily. I mean, okay, so... Montesquieu says so. Right. I mean, yeah. so Massachusetts has big governments. Idaho is a bigger physical space, but it's arguably a red state with, with smaller government. So, so there's, there's a counterexample. Right? But people. Massachusetts, I think, has more people than I Okay, or so maybe there's a third, third feature of bigness, right, is po population as well. Yeah, so they, the, the classical Republican theorists never said land, there should be some land uh, limit. What they always say is most of them have a number of citizens. Because it's just, how many voices can, can you really do self-government? Even constitutional monarchy, by the way, for monarchy LARPers out there. I like monarchy too, by the way. A lot of people don't know that. Theoretically, the best form of government. For monarchy LARPers out there, constitutional monarchies even count as self-government. Thomas's mixed regime, which has the legislative, the executive, and the judicial, kind of like America, is basically, uh, counts as well. They always talk about size from the perspective of how many citizens do you have? How many people can we get in this room? If we start inviting people off the street and still have a real Republican voice and chance to affect or determine our own outcome as to what we want to have for lunch, pizza or Chinese. You get a million people in the room and we're packed in wall to wall. Who's really caucusing and making convincing case? Madison in, in Federalist number 10 is just wrong. So I would say... Theoretically, you can have a small state with not many people that because it's a bunch of dumbass liberals, <laughs> they get big government anyway. But what I'm saying is you can never, what Montesquieu says very clearly is you can never have a big, a, a, a too large polity with too many people that doesn't end up requiring big scale of government. That's Montesquieu's theory. So it's just an ignorant question that I have here, but what has been the Catholic answer to this where there's a, a similar ethic of, we'll have big families? So at some point, the, the container is going to have too many people in it. What, what's, what's the practical answer? Well, we have lots of families, yeah. keep it under 50,000. Well, th those at some point are, are going to... The practical answer is monarchy or patriarchy where the dad decides what we eat for dinner. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, which is why it's the best form of government in theory. Remember, there are three licit forms of government. Monarchy is the best one. It's the most expedient. When you have a good king, it's clearly the best. But it still has to be over 50 or 100,000 people. Um, the, so, but Michael, republics have grown large. A 300, three and a, 350 million people in a republic is a joke. That's more people than we're in the C world. Certainly, certainly. But they expanded not because of big families. As we expanded, the average family size grew, uh, shrank from like five kids per family to like 1.8 or whatever we're at now. That growth is the expansion of manifest destiny, you know, Jefferson's ultimate betrayal of... Yeah, I got to push back a little bit though. though. Part of what drove people west was a, during like the Jacksonian era, huge families mm -hmm. and they all want to carve out their land they're coming west so you have the huge families was actually a reason for growth that's good it just should have been yeah. a different country you should have let it be a frontier like e each state i mean texas 
Texas is too large to be a republic by Montesquieu's standards. Mm -hmm. So Texas needs to be cut up. People think that an extreme neo-Confederate wants Texas to be its own republic like Tejas once was. Uh, we, we had these the Republic of Texas classes forced on us in middle school when I grew up there. Texas is too large. Texas is huge. It's a third of a continent size or a fourth of a continent size. That's too large. Republics, people just... Are so we're so brainwashed the other way that they don't understand. The Earth's population can be five times what it is now. That's what the church wants, right, Michael? We should just have ten times as many countries, many countries. Mm -hmm. That's what a republic is, and that's even what a good constitutional monarchy is. That's, that's what I say. That's what the Montesquieu theory coming out of Aristotle says. I know... The Straussians have been the major push pushbackers who have said, no, no, we should be big. Look at, and you know, they're out of the Madisonian tradition, Federalist number 10. There are some arguments that need to be contended with there. Harry's raised a number of the, the eloquent ones, but I say have big families. And if you're having too many big families, just, just cut it up into a bunch of things. Practically, I don't know how, what that looks like. And, and we were talking, so after talking about all these seven reasons, irreconcilable differences, two types of abuse, bigamy, cruelty, infidelity, desertion, that, that the pagans cite for divorce, I'm saying, well, national divorce, it works. But practically, I don't know what it looks like. This is why at this point in the strangeness of our fallen post-republic, the best way that ideas can be expressed is not through actual histories or even political philosophies. It's through fiction, which is what I see the real value of your, your, your book series, Harry, which is about Civil War and post-Civil War era. It's called The Custer of the West. And you have a new one, a third one coming out, Armstrong and the Mexican Mystery. Fiction is the great expression for this at, at this point. When things get really strange and things take a turn for the undefined as they are now, that's when fiction becomes especially important. Look at it in you know, the role of Dostoevsky in the Russian uh, nation. Look at the role of Shakespeare in the English nation. It was all happening when people were finding themselves in strange new times. And yeah, your book, I think, is probably the, a, a better expression of what we're talking about here, some of the ideas anyway, than what we could uh, intone in, in a, an hour or an hour and a half or even a 10-hour nonfiction book. So you well, they're short. That words. helps. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, rather than Dostoevsky, I mean, Shakespeare, I'm English heritage, and, and the books are funny. They're supposed to be a funny book. But, they're, but they do have this serious aspect. And the, the, the take-off is supposed to be this clever idea that uh, George Armstrong Custer survives this... Uh, event that's documented in the book, first book called Armstrong. He survives the Battle of Little Bighorn and becomes a sort of a knight errant in the West. Um, but especially starting in books two in this last one of the trilogy, um, I've done a lot of importing, I hope very cleverly and metaphorically and doesn't disrupt the humor or the adventure of the stories, today's political issues and put them into 19th century dress. And Custer is confronting them. Custer is sort of like both a heroic figure and a comic figure in the books. <laughs> but he, um, but especially in this third book, the most recent book, it, it presents itself beneath the surface of the adventure and the comedy as a theological battle. It actually does become a battle beneath the earth, a literal battle between the earth and war, 
between a group of Catholics and a group of what you would think of now as sort of your rationalist, scientific, science-worshipping, secular humanists who are running the sort of criminal enterprise that is also uh, engaged in subversion around the world. And you can see how a lot of these ideas that are coming to points of madness now actually yeah. do date back, as we all, all know, way back. And they're exercising them there, even like the transgender thing and some of this other crazy stuff. Um, but in a, sort of in a humorous, comical, I hope page turning exciting way, Custer foils all this and foils it in book three with the help of a priest who is also a Vatican sort of spy, super secret agent, and technical engineer. He designs a submarine, <laughs> which helps them <laughs> in this battle. Um, so they're, they're, they are like that. They're kind of, they're, they're meant to be fun books. They are family friendly. They, the level might be a bit above kids, but teenagers could certainly read them. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I, as I think I might have said earlier in this interview, when you get to such an incredibly insane period in history where it's impossible to deal people, to, to people with reason, at least on the other side, this strikes me as the way. Mm, I mean, because yeah, ultimately, yeah, what are yeah. your values? They come from, it, it, is, it is the culture war. And the culture is about who your heroes are, what your virtues are, what your values are, and what your historical imaginative start points are. And yeah. that's done with TV, it's a, you know, good old TV shows, good old movies, and books. No, no. Yep. Yeah, when I when I was trying to as a theology teacher, when I was trying to introduce my eleventh graders, I, I taught students for eleventh and twelfth grade, and I'd, I'd converted a, a, a fair number of them at least to hearing me out and, and understanding that theology is the queen of the sciences. It's not a joke. You should take it seriously. Even the ones that I didn't convert to becoming Latin mass Catholics were by 12th grade, they were all sold on the idea that, whoa, Roman Catholicism is a serious proposition. It's not a laugh. We shouldn't laugh at our, our theology textbooks, however goofy they are, however goofy the uh, Karen is that's teaching it to me, that's taught it to me from kindergarten through 10th grade. Um, it's actually a serious intellectual endeavor. I'd at least convinced 90% of the class of that by 12th grade. No one snickered anymore. One of the first things I did was in 11th grade, around a semester in, around Christmas, I had them read Father Elijah by Michael D. O'Brien, the book which more excitingly, talking about Vatican spies, sells the notion of church crisis and Vatican spies and counter spies, just one of my favorite books of all time, you know, it's really a Vatican spy working against Satan and the forces of Satan infiltrating the Vatican as perfectly realistic. And that book was written in 1996, and it's perfectly realistic. And, uh, you know, so, so yeah, I think, I think we're about out of battery now. I just saw this. <laughs> but I, I wanted to tell people where they can get this book, Harry, It'll, real it, fast. it launches on Tuesday, September, whatever Tuesday is, 21st or so, 20th. Um, and it's on Amazon, all the bookstores. Okay, so this Tuesday, yep. Amazon, at your bookstore near you, Barnes & Noble, just type in the title. This is uh, The Custer of the West, Armstrong and the Mexican Mystery by, by yours, by ours truly here. H.W. Uh, Crocker III is my 
Oh, you, you don't you don't go Harry Crocker. H. No. W. Crocker the yeah. third. Go purchase this book, folks. Great family fiction, and it's relevant to everything we've talked about today. And and it's also very very Catholic. Catholic and Southern is. <laughs> what I like as an American. Yeah, that's actually one of the themes too. It's about the reconciliation of North and South. Two of his friends are Confederate veterans. Beautiful. We can reconcile. We just need to uh, win. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. God bless you guys, Harry. Thanks Thank for you. coming in, Mike. Thanks a lot, Thank guys. Uh, everybody, keep your ears tuned. Deus Volt. Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb.